Let's talk about health insurance and Medicare and Social Security. Everybody wonders if there's a way to make these not just solvent, but really effective for the long haul without breaking the back of either the taxpayers or American families. Today, we're going to talk with a couple of people who think there is a way and who actually may be in a position to do something about it. Welcome, everybody. I'm Graham Walker coming to you from the Independent Institute here in Oakland, California. We are just across the bay from San Francisco, and I'm welcoming you to the episode today of Independent Conversations, where we are extremely privileged to have with us two experts on these subjects. First of all, Congressman Pete Session, and then Dr. John Goodman. Let me just brag on you for a moment, uh, Congressman Sessions, if I may. And by the way, glad you're here. Say hi to your friends. Thank you very much. And, and Graham, I'm delighted to be with you today. It's great to see you. So you have served, I think, 11 terms in the House. Have I got that right? Correct. Uh, and you, first of all, were representing the 32nd Congressional District for a long time, 1997 till 2019. And then a little glitch occurred, but then you got elected from the 17th District in 2020. And you have been chairman of the House Rules Committee and also of the National Republican Congressional Committee. Uh, and you and John Goodman have worked together in the past, have you not? We have. We, we worked together. John likes public policy, uh, answers to public policy, and I like getting them done in law. And so we formed this uh, relationship where he gets the ideas and the data behind the ideas, and I then try and sell them uh, in Congress to where we can come up with better policy. Absolutely. Well, John Goodman is really something. Um, uh, hi, John. Glad you're here today. Glad to be with you. And I'd love to see uh, John and talk with him. He is, of course, a senior fellow here with the Independent Institute in California, also the head of his own Goodman Institute for Public Policy Research in Dallas, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Uh, and the author of quite a number of interesting books, such as uh, published by our own Independent Institute, uh, Better Choice, Healthcare Solutions for America, Priceless, I love Priceless, Curing the Healthcare Crisis, uh, and uh, a number of other interesting books, like, for instance, you published one called Living with Obamacare, A Consumer's Guide. Uh, I bet a lot of people were glad to see that book come out, John. And everybody knows you because you keep showing up on CNN, PBS, CNBC, uh, we've read your pieces in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, et cetera. Uh, today, I'm going to brag on the fact that you have published with us most recently uh, a wonderful new book. I'll just show people the cover of the book, uh, which is here, New Way to Care, Social Protections That Put Families First. And this book uh, is going to be the basis for most of our conversation today, John. Congratulations on, on getting that book together, and thank you for publishing it with the Independent Institute. Well, glad to do it. So, John, just, just to get this started, before I turn to the congressman for a moment, um, why in the world did the Wall Street Journal label you the father of health savings accounts? I don't know. Maybe they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> no, I think uh, they did, though. Did that, just, just tell us a little bit why they well, thought really, you deserved that. It's really that. interesting. When, when I took the idea to Washington, uh, I only had one person who was on my side, and that was Pat Rooney who was head of Golden Rule Insurance Company, which is a very small insurance company in Indianapolis. Everybody else was against this. Uh, the doctors were against this AMA, the health insurance companies, the 
hospitals, big business, small business. The conservative think tanks were either against us or are or, or neutral. And, and Pete can tell you, it's really, really hard in Washington to get a law passed if everybody there is either against you or neutral. But anyway, we got it done. And today, 30 million people have a health savings account. So that that's a, a remarkable change against all odds. Your brainchild, and I think Congressman Session, you must have been part of that process. Well, in fact, John has been selling these ideas that give individuals an opportunity to be uh, within the system, but to utilize advantages that they need that might not be covering them in law. And so this broadens it out and leaves consumer choice and activity to where a consumer can be responsible, not just for their own health care, but their own outcomes because they choose their own doctor and they can choose those things that might be available, but not available in the law specifically. And so Dr. Goodman's idea is, and he earned it, the father of the health savings account. Yeah. So on behalf of all those families across America, I think you're getting some thanks, John. Good, good. We need to make that account more flexible and available to more people. So I'm going to hand this off to you, Congressman Sessions, just to have some questions that you may have for John, some comments. Uh, his book, New Way to Care, uh, that I mentioned before, sure has a lot of unexpected solutions to move toward a more market-based social insurance system. So putting this in your hands, Congressman Sessions. Good. Well, let's begin that conversation. Dr. Goodman, you're aware that uh, government does establish rules and regulations. They put together policies and, and, and have plans like Social Security, Medicare, uh, Medicaid, and other uh, types of programs. But you have taken the perspective of looking at them from a long-term avenue of being able to be sustainable, being able to be in the best interest of a consumer. Talk to us about how important it is that these plans be uh, accessible by people, usable by people, but be sustainable. You know, the issue here is social insurance. And what that means is we turn to government as the insurer instead of providing for ourselves and relying on our family and insuring privately. And uh, we're not the only country that's done this. Just about every country in the world has government involved in uh, insuring your retirement uh, in case you live longer than uh, uh, then you're able to engage in productive work. Uh, they insure you against early death in case you leave dependents without resources. They insure you against disability. They insure you against ill health. And uh, in this country, you also have unemployment insurance and, and workers' comp. And what most people don't realize is the reason we have big government is because all of these social insurance programs. The reason why government grew in the 20th century is not because we were giving a lot of money to poor people. It's because we were providing social insurance to the middle class. So, so this social insurance comes at a cost, but we also have a balance of sustainability and being able to pay for those things that might be what I would say equal with the benefit uh, to the citizenry. Talk to me about the solvency and this balance? Well, our deficit problem is a social insurance problem. So right now, our national debt is a little bit above uh, the 
total gross national product or in excess of 100% of gross national product. Uh, according to the Congressional Budget Office, when we go out to mid-century, we're going to be have debt at twice the level of our GDP. And uh, we've never seen anything like that before. And no one's quite sure how the financial market's going to react to it. And people are going to start questioning whether whether we're, we're a solvent country. Now, why is that happening? Almost the large uh, majority of, of the increase in spending are these social insurance programs that we're talking about. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare. Uh, that's where the spending is growing. And it's on automatic pilot. So Congress doesn't have to vote on this every year. Uh, this spending just goes up and the debt goes up. So Dr. Goodman, one of the key attributes that has made America successful is competition. So as we look at these social insurance programs, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, uh, is it good that we should have some competition model? I'm not talking about privatization. I'm talking about where a person goes to the free market to get what they need as a possible alternative. Is this one of the things that might be beneficial competition. Yes, because what we have now is a monopoly. And because it's monopoly, it can uh, make promises for the future that are not paid for. And that's basically what happens under Social Security and Medicare. Uh, we're making promises to workers today. They pay payroll taxes. We're telling the workers that their payroll taxes are funding future benefits, but that turns out to be a lie. Uh, every dollar payroll taxes that they, they send to the treasury gets spent immediately, almost the very day, the very hour, the very second that comes in the door. And looking to the future for young people to get benefits later on down the line, we're going to have to have higher taxes on future workers. Many of them are not yet born. None of them have agreed to pay those higher tax rates. So what we have is a government-sponsored Ponzi scheme. Um, in the private sector, this is illegal. Uh, so it's kind of hard for uh, a private sector plan to compete against a government-sponsored policy scheme. But there are other countries in the world that have found better answers. And one of them is Singapore. And in Singapore, they don't have a government monopoly like this. They require people to save uh, for their retirement. And the Singapore system has worked amazingly well. 70% of all the people in Singapore are millionaires. They have more millionaires per capita than any country in the world. And that's because in Singapore, people are saving for their own retirement. Chile is another country that's done quite well. Uh, they went from a system like ours to a system where people put money in private accounts. Uh, the government you know, ensures that those accounts are well managed. Uh, but it's worked very well in Chile. And um, we tried to do something like that in the United States uh, when President Bush was in office, uh, but we floundered and failed. You know, it's kind we of weird, fail. John. I'm just tossing a thought in here. An ordinary person, working person, we have this impression that we're paying our Social Security tax and it's going into our account somewhere and the money's sitting there earning interest. Because that is the lie the government promotes. And it's not only promoted by a few people here and there. The trustees come out every year with an annual report and they talk about the money in the trust fund. Uh, without telling people there really is no money in the trust fund, that uh, the Social Security trust fund has never held assets. Uh, the Medicare trust fund has never held assets. In fact, that's true of every trust fund, the highway trust fund. There's no government trust fund that's holding assets. These, these what we call trust funds are merely accounting entities that they want to keep track of 
and this is a legitimate thing to do. If, if we want Social Security to be funded by payroll tax, we need to keep track of all the payroll taxes and all the benefits and make sure that uh, uh, we're not exceeding the money that's coming in the door. But there's no money sitting there for future needs. And uh, the only way that young people today are going to get benefits 30 or 40 years from now is to take money from future taxpayers. It's going to be a lot more money than what people are paying today. So in other words, what happens is we're, we have a, a trust fund that is not a trust fund, but they call it that. The money is going to pay for regular uh, running of the government. And we have a large number of people who are increasingly retiring. So I don't know the exact number, but it's something like for every person that is on benefit, there's a smaller number of people who are paying in which ultimately gets you to where you're upside down. What does that look like? Well, looking out into the future, we have a huge unfunded liability. And what I mean is that the Social Security trustees do this. They project indefinitely into the future what we're going to owe going out into the future. And then what do we expect to come in in terms of payroll taxes? And there's a gap and it gets larger and larger through time. And then if you do what financial people do, you discount that back to the present and what, what you do in a pension fund and ask, well, 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 how much do we owe that's not paid for? And it turns out that it's $68 trillion, which is about three times the size of our economy. That's the unfunded liability in social security alone. Now, furthermore, uh, it keeps growing so that between this year's trustees report and last year's, the unfunded liability grew by almost $6 trillion. Now, think about that. We're over in the House of Representatives arguing about a $3.5 trillion spending bill, and everybody's saying this is too big. We can't afford it. Meanwhile, these same people sat there, and the federal liability for Social Security increased by twice that amount without Congress lifting a finger and really without the trustees saying a word about it. So there are answers that are out there and you had mentioned Singapore, you had mentioned Chile. Tell us about some of these realistic ideas that we should all Americans be aware of to where we create a demand model where we're asking members of Congress to please give answers and to find out what they support. What would some of those best directions be? Well, the best direction is for people to fund their own retirement. Uh, we don't want people to consume all their income and show up uh, for their retirement years destitute and asking other people to support them. So I think there is a legitimate reason to insist that people put money aside so that when they quit working, uh, they have funds to support themselves. Um, but there's no reason why we couldn't do that for a small fraction of the money we're paying in taxes to Social Security. And we have advocated that. Tom Saving at Texas A&M was a trustee of Social Security, and he and I have worked on this problem, and, and along with his colleagues. And uh, they have calculated that uh, for about 4% of payroll a year, um, we could uh, have young people um, put enough aside so that by the time they reach retirement years, they will fu fully fund their Social Security benefits. They would have as much or more than they would under the current system. And that would be a, a sound system because it would be funded and each generation would be paying its own way instead of trying to depend on the unborn generation to pay for benefits they never agreed to pay for. Well, well I was just going to say, you mentioned Chile. They must have had a time before they had that and then afterwards they did have. How did they transition? 
Well, uh, they had a system like ours, and just like ours, the politicians promised benefits that weren't paid for. The system was going broke faster than ours because they were more irresponsible uh, than, than we have been. And uh, Pinochet, a dictator, came in. It's interesting how many how many interesting systems have been set up by dictators that weren't, weren't, weren't subject to a vote. But in any event, Pinochet is gone. Uh, Chile is now a democracy, but the system they created survived, and it's one of the best in the world. Uh, Chile, uh, because of the free enterprise, private sector reforms in Chile, has the highest standard of living, lowest poverty rate in all of Latin America. That said, uh, the left is really strong right now in Chile, and they may win the next election, and they're promising to undo the whole thing, which they may do. I hope they don't. But um, we must always be vigilant. Just because you, you have a good program doesn't mean it, it stays there forever. You've got to defend it and protect it. So, so there are answers in the marketplace that are successful. Uh, and, and these answers revolve around not just the integrity of the program, but actually the opportunity to sustain it so that the person that was making the contribution, it is there to support them. We have been through a, a, a fight in healthcare uh, called the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act is a, a program that on its surface was twice as expensive as a normal regular program. As a member of Congress, I have been on what is called the Affordable Care Act. And for years going back, I have a disabled son, as you know, uh, a Down syndrome young man. He was not allowed to be into any children's health care hospital. And that is because the reimbursement level is such so small. Talk to us about the problems with the government getting involved in health care and how it has skewed the system. Well, you just decided the two biggest ones. Uh, the premiums and deductibles are out of sight. Uh, last year, the average premium and the average deductible, if you add the two together, uh, they summed to $11,000 um, for a family of four, which means that that family had to pay $11,000 before it got any benefits from its insurance plan. That's not what we were promised, but that's what we are living with. And for, uh, for some families, uh, it can be as high as $25,000 before they get any benefits from the program. Um, then... Uh, we have uh, limited narrow networks and you decided your son couldn't get into the right hospital, the right doctor, that's happening everywhere. Here in Dallas, Texas, you cannot buy individual insurance anywhere in the Metroplex that gets you into University of Texas Health Science Center, one of the best medical facilities in the whole country. In the whole state of Texas, you cannot buy insurance, individual insurance, that gets you into MD Anderson Cancer Center down in Houston. And this is happening everywhere. And what it means is that people are denied access to the best doctors and, and, and the best uh, facilities. Think about what we were promised. Uh, we were promised that people with pre-existing conditions like your son, Pete, were going to be better cared for. In fact, now they're in worse shape. Uh, certainly here in Texas, you would have been better off if there never had been Obamacare. And, um, and, and unfortunately, if I could say this about your friends in Congress, they didn't make this point uh, in the elections and in the hearings that they never held. Um, Republicans, if you want to replace Obamacare, if you just even reform it, 
you have to first tell people what's wrong with it. And I know you have done that, Pete, but I think some of your colleagues have been slow to do so. Well, in fact, uh, there's also a decision-making point here, and that is that healthcare is partially or mostly should be a responsibility of state insurance models, of, of states deciding uh, how they're going to run things. Would we really do better, kind of what I would say, allowing states to offer their own responsible insurance programs, take care of their own people, and provide some of this money there for uninsured people? Well, we would indeed. Um, you know, before there was Obamacare in Texas, we had a risk pool. Most states had risk pools. And what that meant was that if you were denied coverage by, uh, by an insurer, you went in the Texas risk pool. But what you got was a standard Blue Cross plan. And uh, you had to pay a little bit more uh, than, than regular, but not as much as you're paying today for Obamacare. And it allowed you to go see any doctor, or enter any facility. Now, that system wasn't perfect, but, you know, a, an improvement here and there would have given us a much better system than what we got with Obamacare. And um, the problem is the Republicans have not had a good reform plan and Democrats don't want to change what the monster really that they have created. So you have spoken about the opportunity for people to become involved and have uh, some footing involved. Uh, we know that healthcare, those people who have employer provided healthcare, the employer and the employee receive really a very nice opportunity, not only to buy healthcare, but to get it on a, on a uh, group basis. They get a $5,000 deductible basis. They get to use this on a pretext basis. But if you're not with an employer provided health care, you really don't get much help at all, do you? Well, before Obamacare, you got virtually none. Obamacare does have subsidies, but if you make if you're an individual and you make fifty thousand dollars, you don't get any subsidy. Uh, and so so the way we're subsidizing health care makes no sense whatsoever. So these folks over here at work get a big subsidy. People in Obamacare get a subsidy. People who make a little bit too much money get none. Over in the employer market, the more you weigh and make, the bigger your subsidy. Over in the individual market, it's the reverse. So this is a system that's ripe for reform. <laughs> and um, a good reform is one that you, Pete, uh, endorsed along with Senator Bill Cassidy. And you had a very good bill. And it would have taken all this money and given everybody the same subsidy and let them choose insurance that fits their own individual family needs, and their own health care needs. And um, that's kind of that's a really big reform. But it's the kind of reform that would be really good. Does health insurance have to be an employer benefit? No, no, it doesn't have to be. Uh, but uh, right after World War II, we had price controls and wage controls, and employers started giving employees health insurance, and the government didn't tax it. And once we started down that road, it's never changed. And once you have millions of people getting a tax-free benefit, it's, um, it's hard to change. Uh, but what uh, what Pete suggested in his bill is, well, look, let's let's uh, let's not tell employers they have to abolish your health insurance, but let's just give everybody uh, a tax credit, and it's the same whether you're at work and away from work, and um, and 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 then uh, uh, let the market work. Now, 
one of the really good things that Donald Trump did, and he doesn't get credit for uh, for deregulating healthcare as much as he did, but one really, really good reform by executive order, Congress had nothing to do with it. Uh, employers today can actually give their employees uh, pre-tax dollars and they can buy their own insurance and take it with them from job to job and in and out of the labor market. And that's a huge step in the right direction. So this is an opportunity for people to be able to, as I would say, uh, my previous career, as you know, was with uh, 16 years was with AT&T. I would like to have had, because I was on Obamacare as a member of Congress, I would like to have had a competitive model where I could have had, instead of what the Affordable Care Act offered me, I would have wanted something that looked more like the employees of the federal, regular employees of the federal government or my old employer, AT&T. Wouldn't that be useful also for regular people that perhaps don't have employer-provided health care? And the basis of that is the tax policy, but also the group coverage. I like the way you put that. Uh, so, so in a good system, if people are in an employer plan um, and they, 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 they retire or they um, get laid off and they have to go to the individual market, they should be able to buy similar insurance and they should get the same help from government that they got at work. And that's what I wish, uh, Pete, that you and your colleagues would, would stress to, to the voters, that that is the ideal. That, that's what they thought they were getting from Obamacare. And that was a broken promise. Well, it, it was a broken promise. But, but let's go now to where we think we can go now that the country is to a point where dollars seemingly are very, very important. And the government is intruding in every part of our lives. Do Republicans need, want and need to come up with this plan to address Obamacare? Or is it just something that is so complex that no one wants to do it? No, they need to address the problem, but they need to learn from Democrats about how to talk about health care. Uh, when Democrats talk about health care, they talk about benefits. When Republicans talk about it, they talk about how we're going to create the benefit and we're going to block money to the states or something like that. And people don't know what that means for them. So when Bernie Sanders says Medicare for all, you hear that and you think, OK, I'm going to get good health care. Bernie Sanders never spends time telling you how he's going to get 160 million people out of a health plan that they like from their employer over into Medicare. And if he did, he'd lose everybody. So so the Democrats don't talk about how they're going to do things. They talk about how it's going to benefit you. And uh, that's what Republicans need to learn. Republicans need to say to the voter, how do you like paying $11,000 before you get any benefit from your health plan? Well, that's something we're gonna change. How do you like living in Dallas? You can't go see the best doctors. You can't enter the best hospital. We're gonna change that too. And if we talked to, I say we, if Republicans talked to voters that way, we would find a lot of uh, interest in reforming the system. Well, in fact, I think what you think is a key to what you believe in, and that is a competitive model, a competitive model where everybody would stand a fair and good chance. And they might, whether they were in a union plan, whether they were in an employer provided plan, or whether they were, quote, on their own as a self-employed person. We need to move to a system more rapidly to also make sure the system is funded properly. Tell me about the plight that doctors 
hospitals and 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 these healthcare uh, providers. Tell me about what their what their plight is, a pain for the services they have. Well, what we've done is, if you remember when President Obama ran for president, uh, the whole idea was to increase the number with private health insurance. He didn't say we're going to put a bunch of people into Medicaid. If he had said that, he would have lost the election. He said, we're going to give you private insurance. And he pretended it would be just as good as what employers are offering. Uh, and yet what happened? If you take the number of people with private insurance, uh, individually owned, uh, the year Obama was elected, and you compare it to where it was right before the pandemic, um, it, it, it barely moved. And we were spending, for all the subsidies and all those years, we were spending $25,000 a year per new person, newly insured, or, or $100,000 for a family of four. And that's just looking at individually insured. Now, over in the employer market, because of the rules and regulations, that dropped. So fewer people have insurance from employer. So on net, uh, there's been no gain. And we're spending $40, million, uh, $40 billion a year on this program. And now what are the Democrats proposing in Congress? They're proposing to put more money into Obamacare. And the last calculation I saw showed that it's going to cost $18,000 for each newly insured person. So that's just wasting money. And what we just had a report the other day that we're now spending 20% of GDP on health care. And what people need to understand is when you pour money into a system and you don't increase supply, we haven't increased the number of doctors or hospital beds, and you, you get inflation in health care, you, you make it harder for people who are sick and have real health care needs to get the care they need. So, so what, what's happened and what's being proposed is really a threat to our health. It's not a, uh, not a benefit. So there's innovation in healthcare also. There's a lot of physicians and, and hospitals that have made decisions that they would like to be involved long-term in a person's health and put them on a regimen that makes them healthier. What advantages are we giving to physicians who actually make the system work better or are we simply punishing them? What I like is something called direct primary care. We used to call it concierge care. And I remember 10, 15 years ago, people would say, well, I have a doctor and I can call him on my cell phone anytime, night or day. And if I go to the hospital, he comes and makes sure I'm treated correctly. And that was called concierge medicine. It cost thousands of dollars. But today, uh, that model is available to ordinary folks. And a mother, for example, with a child, middle-aged mother, uh, pays uh, $50 a month, $10 a month for the child. And they have the doctor's cell phone number, and they get all primary care for, for that amount of money. And so all the benefits of concierge care are now available to ordinary people for a really good price. And I'm not saying that's the only way to do this, but, um, but that's a model that, that works well. And, and, of course, with telehealth now, uh, you can have Zoom calls with your doctor, and that's something else Trump did for us. Uh, he made it possible to use Facebook and Zoom and talk to your love, just like we're talking right now. This, this was illegal uh, back before the pandemic was here and before Trump was president. So, as I said earlier, he did a lot of things to deregulate health care. And one of the things I hope you will do, Pete, in, in the Congress is make permanent a lot of these changes that under Trump, were really produced by executive order and they could go away. It could go away, but there are also some models that are out there that you spoke about that would be good for Medicare. Medicare seniors taking advantage of 
not just their phone, but because of the uh, circumstance with COVID. Talk to us about those things that you would like to see ideas to help seniors. Well, one thing we need to do is to protect the Medicare Advantage program. And interestingly enough, this is a Republican created program. Uh, so if you, we have in our healthcare system, two places and only two places where people choose during an open enrollment period, which we're going through right now, and, um, and they're competing private insurers and there's no discrimination based on health condition and you have government subsidies and one of these systems works really well and the other has been a disaster. And works, what works really well is Medicare Advantage and we're inching up to half of all seniors in Medicare Advantage. And these are private insurance plans. Over in Obamacare, uh, it's been a disaster for reasons we have discussed. Um, so, th so that's a model for reforming uh, Obamacare. Uh, now, for some reason in Congress, people on the left uh, hate Medicare Advantage and they want to do away with it. And I see every day some new criticism of it, but the seniors are voting with their feet and they like it. Um, now, uh, Congress passed a law that said seniors can't talk to their doctor on their phone, can't receive virtual visits in their home. And that was one of the things they had to reverse themselves when the pandemic came along. And then the Trump administration was ready with executive orders to implement that, uh, which meant that it happened about a year sooner than it would have happened if Hillary Clinton were president. But um, uh, so that needs to be made permanent. And there are a lot of other changes we could make to Medicare Advantage, which would make it even better. So, so we have to resist the desire to get do away with Medicare Advantage and take advantage of reforms that I think would make, uh, make it even better for seniors. Making it better for seniors also means the ability that they have to find a doctor of their choice. The, the differential between what insurance, normal insurance might pay and Medicare is about 25 to 30%, meaning that a physician would receive total reimbursement of about 30% less for perhaps more complex issues. How are we going to solve that? Well, by allowing uh, the market to work. So earlier I described the direct primary care where you get all your primary care from a physician. Specialist care could work the same way. And uh, the specialist would compete and the Let's go to the specialist group of his choice, and uh, they would provide all the specialty care for, for the condition. It could be diabetes, could be cancer, could be heart disease. And so we could have a real market, and, uh, and, and I think this could happen very quickly. There's already some progress. For example, in Medicare Advantage, it's the only place in the whole healthcare system where a plan can specialize. In Medicare Advantage, a plan can specialize in diabetes, heart care, liver care, cancer care, and, and ask for medical records and ask medical questions. And if you don't have diabetes, you can't get into the diabetic plan. That cannot happen in Obamacare. In Obamacare, you have to be all things to all people. You cannot ask health questions. And so we have a really good model in Medicare Advantage to start with, but it could be made better. Uh, I'd like to have continuous open enrollment. I don't see why if a senior has a change in health condition, let's say you discover you've got cancer. Well, why would you want to wait a year before you get into the cancer plan? You should be able to do that immediately. And these are the kinds of reforms I think will be very appealing to senior voters. And boy, I'd love to see Pete, you and, and your colleagues 
uh, really make this an election year because I think it could be done. I think it would have voter appeal and it'd be a, a good kind of reform to the Medicare system. Uh, we're getting some comments from our friends on the line who are with us today. Uh, so if you don't mind if I just toss these in here. Um, so uh, Howard is with us watching the program today. He says this, this is pretty interesting. He says, I know Obamacare has been challenged in the Supreme Court several times. My question is, why have we not argued the 10th Amendment? The state of Texas did not give the federal government the powers to control our health care. Maybe we should turn to the congressman if we're talking about the 10th Amendment here. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's pretty simple. The, the 10th Amendment does apply to everything that the federal government doesn't take. And the federal government chose to take this. They did it. I don't believe they did it properly, but they did it in a process way that Supreme Court said it's the law. We have a problem with necessarily understanding whose role is what, and we get more into uh, these roles rather than we do how to fix it. And so I'd like to tell Howard, yes, that's a good argument. We'd like to have that, but how about if we made healthcare fair for everybody, as Dr. Goodman has suggested, by making everybody, giving them what I call the AT&T model, as opposed to the Obamacare model that is twice as expensive and does not work for people when they need it. No, I agree with that. Um, I wish we quit talking about abolishing Obamacare because nobody knows what that means for them. <laughs> we should instead talking about we're gonna, how we're going to reform the system and let people know how that's going to be good for them. Competition. Yes, sir. We've got a question uh, from another one of our friends who says, what about unemployment insurance? Is that is that relevant to this discussion? It's covered in the book and uh, as is uh, workers comp and uh, uh, other programs run at the state level. Um, there are better systems. Uh, Chile has a much better system of unemployment insurance. Uh, they have private accounts and uh, workers um, who get laid off can use their account to pay for training and pay for job search. And uh, it works much better. The, the disability program uh, in Chile, which starts out looking like ours, costs half as much as ours costs because uh, once a worker claims a disability, uh, an insurer and the worker come together and they negotiate uh, a settlement. And then once that settlement is made, the worker can go back to work the next day. Uh, in the United States, you know, we, we snoop around and try to catch the worker, <laughs> make sure he's not going back to work. <laughs> in Chile, they want the worker to go back to work and they cut their costs well, that, makes <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, we've got another common sense comment. Goes all, listen, common sense goes a long way in public policy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> if we had more Pete Sessions in Congress, we'd have more common sense. That's uh, right. We got comment from a friend on the line uh, watching us called Marion, and, and she's just scratching her head. She says, you may need to repeat the part about Medicare and Social Security to be a government-sponsored Ponzi scheme. I think Marion's having trouble, like, really letting that sink in. Well, maybe she is, but we would look at where these private systems that are empowered in the law have been very, very successful. Uh, teachers, retirement programs, a uh, train, uh, employees of, of governments that might be uh, uh, city or uh, county governments, they have worked very, very well. 
The problem is, is that we have too many rules and regulations about them, and they have decided that they want to limit what benefits they would give because, in fact, the system took out the money before it even got to the healthcare provider. John? Think about Bernie Sander, uh, Bernie uh, Madoff, I'm sorry. Uh, what did Bernie Madoff do wrong? Well, he collected money from people and he told them he was investing in the stock market and he gave them annual returns that uh, looked like he was investing in the stock market. In fact, he wasn't. Uh, he took the money and spent it on himself and his friends. That's what we call a Ponzi scheme. It's illegal. And that's why he went to prison. Well, the federal government has been doing the same thing with Social Security. Uh, voters were told that the money was going to be invested. It was going to be there for their retirement. In fact, it's not there. In fact, it was spent. Again, every dollar of payroll tax that goes to the Treasury is spent the very day, the very hour, the very minute it comes in the door. Nothing is being saved. Nothing is being invested. And the public's not being told that. So we have the same thing Bernie Madoff did, except the people who are managing Social Security are not in prison. Uh, uh, <laughs> alongside Bernie Madoff, but um, I've heard it said that maybe they should be. <laughs> so would it be true, John, uh, an answering in, in polite response to this woman, that if anybody did it on the outside, it would be fraud, would be prosecuted. If it is done by the government, it's simply legal fraud. That's right. So and if and any pension fund came anywhere close to doing what Social Security does, the federal government would close them down. Well, and that's right. right. We've seen the model as a member of Congress. I've seen the model where people uh, fight to get disability and disability takes several years in fighting the government. The first thing is you have to be uh, disabled for quite some time before you can even apply in the free market with the same or similar plan uh, the 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 federal law says is that the insurance company must give an answer within 60 days and get on with it, or they can be held in contempt of court. But the federal government under similar circumstances takes years to pay off. And it's not a given that you can even fight your own government unless they allow you to. Yeah, now we haven't really talked about all the rules and regulations and how bad they are. But Social Security has 13 different benefits and 2,700 different rules and regulations, and almost no one understands them. And it turns out that people are losing billions and billions of dollars collectively every year because they don't know how to ask for their benefits in the right way. And Social Security is unforgiving. So that if you get in and you make a decision three years later, you realize, well, I made a mistake. They don't give you the money back. So, so that this is a huge problem. And it's also a problem in Medicare, by the way. Um, and, and you're saying, Pete, that it, the bureaucracy is a problem with disability insurance. Uh, we, we have the, these entitlement programs are very, very complicated. And they often result in the people who most need help not getting it. Well, in fact, what I'm suggesting to you, and Grandma, I'm going to come to you. What I'm suggesting is, is that they waive their own requirements in their favor, but the law would not do that where a free market's involved. Graham? Yeah, you're so right about that. Well, I was just going to throw in another question we got from one of our viewers, uh, Jennifer. 
uh, well, I think the, the premise of Jennifer's question is that you guys are both Texans. And so she says, uh, why is Texas opposed to Medicaid expansion? And she says, uh, not just philosophically, she wants like some numbers or something to explain why Texas is opposed to Medicaid expansion. You guys aren't in charge of Texas, but do you have any ideas? Well, I think well they're afraid that the, you want to answer, Pete? No, go, go ahead, John. I think they're afraid that uh, they're getting lured into a system. And once they get there, there are these huge costs uh, in future years. And uh, the government pays most of it up front. But then in future years, they've got to raise taxes. And, um, uh, and they're afraid what it's going to do to the state budget. Already, Medicaid is crowding out education and just about everything else the, the, the state wants to do. So it's a huge problem. And what it wasn't that long ago that Texas and, and practically every state went to Congress and said, we'd like a block grant. We, and instead of telling us how to run our healthcare program, just give us some money in a block grant, and then we will decide how to dispense the funds. And every governor believed that they could, uh, you know, uh, have a more efficient, more effective system if they didn't have to abide by all the federal rules and regulations. So there's an answer that would be good for Texas, but also good for the people who wrote the Affordable Care Act. I believe that it would be uh, quite sincere to say also that Republicans, a philosophy in Texas, we want people to go to work. Uh, there are lots of places that provide employer-provided health care. There are lots of places, uh, notwithstanding whether you want to work at McDonald's or not, McDonald's provides full-time benefits. There are lots of companies that provide full-time benefits. But the avenue is you gotta go to work. You gotta be a part of this. And we believe that people should find a way to get up and go to work. My Down syndrome son gets up and goes to work. He has different rules and regulations, but he still participates in the workforce. And we believe that that's important. This is where in 1994, Dr. John Goodman was a leading edge proponent of getting people back to work through welfare reform rules and regulations that empowered and encouraged people to stay unemployed and not work. We should have an angle that we encourage people to go to work. We encourage people to go and be participatory and encourage them to better their lives. It's a philosophy also, Dr. Goodman. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So um, I'm no expert on this stuff. Um, I, I've, you know, look, tried to understand John's book. I understand a lot of it, but the thing that, that most puzzles me, John, is um, getting from here to there. I mean, I understand how much better it would be if many of these social, all of these social insurance programs were funded by the actual people who benefit from them, like the way you say the Singaporeans do. We don't have that. We have this Ponzi scheme. And so everybody who's sort of invested in the Ponzi scheme doesn't want the Ponzi scheme to stop, to stop on them, right? Like you keep hoping the next guy will be the sucker if you're if you're stuck but you you want to stay in the ponzi scheme so how do we get from the current ponzi scheme to a self-funded independently viable market-based solution to all these social people are going to resist the transition there must be a way to make it happen without destroying the support for the shift well there is now at the end of the 20th century uh, all over the world people were realizing that government programs social welfare programs weren't working very well and Social Security is one of the big ones. 
Uh, and all these countries had a long-term unfunded liabilities. And so 30 different countries to one degree or another reformed their social security system with private accounts. Of course, Chile was one of the most uh, radical, most complete reforms, but um, 30 countries in all. And um, in the United States, there was interested in doing interest in doing the same thing. And there was bipartisan interest. A lot of people don't know this, but Bill Clinton had his treasury investigating a way to create private accounts for people under social security. And uh, what kept that from happening was Monica Lewinsky and his left wing in the Congress said, if you don't give up social security reform, we're not going to support you with Monica. And, um, and that's what happened there. But when, when president George W. Bush came along, uh, he formed a, a bipartisan commission and Senator Moynihan was the Democrat who was a co-chair of that commission. And the first thing Moynihan did was he asked the treasury to send over the paperwork that was done uh, for Bill Clinton. And uh, that was um, kind of where they started. So it really was bipartisan. And in my opinion, the Bush people made, and, and the people on that commission made one huge mistake. And that is they didn't guarantee the end results. See, in, in Chile, what they said is that we want you to invest in a diversified portfolio. We know the stock market goes up and down, but we promise you that at the end, you'll never get less oh, than the old system. So like there's like a, that's all, it, a floor, yeah, like a you, floor. Won't, you won't drop yeah. below that floor. Now, so then you can take the risk. market growth, almost nobody's going to, you don't have to ever do much to, to meet that floor. But just in case um, people wanted that security and it was never offered. And I don't, I, I can't explain why. I, um, I think George W. wasn't paying enough attention to, to his reform. But I think it had that promise been there, we would have had a much better chance. Well, I, th I think also, and, and, and John, you and I are both very dear friends with the former president, President uh, George W. Bush. But what I think he did is he made a pronouncement, you could put it in the stock market. And yes. that's where your statement, what goes up comes down, can come down, timing. Uh, as you recall, one of the first days I met you back in 1992, or one 1991, you met me and heard me say publicly that we should go to a guaranteed interest model similar to what we had with uh, the, the original 401ks. The original 401ks were based upon how long you put the money in, they would give you that corresponding higher rate. You stayed in 30 years, you got a higher rate. I believe that we still must have available talking taking graham's question how do you go from here to there well the answer is it may not apply to everybody it will be an option and i would guarantee you that people who are 40 years or below would see that their investment in their own a 401k or savings plan for social security that would follow the same rules and regulations you had to leave it in but you then got to keep, because it was your account, uh, you would have that advantage. Dr. Goodman has not gone through how Social Security, if you died before you collect benefits, you get $255. Thank you very much. Unless you left behind a beneficiary that was under, I think, 21. So you can see that the system is skewed and people who die early don't benefit. And this is one of the disparities 
that is not told, whereas if you had your own account, you get to leave it to a beneficiary. You're right. God, I love being right. I wish my mother were alive <laughs> to hear somebody say I was right for once. Graham? There you go. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to close this off in just a few minutes here. Um, one more question is coming in from uh, one of our friends named Jeffrey. Uh, he, he says, maybe you've already explained this, John, but he's, Jeffrey says, uh, those who champion Medicare for all seem to be unaware of the cost of Medicare premiums and the deductibles and co-pays. Can you address this, says Jeffrey? Maybe you kind of already have, but just in brief, if you could come back to it. Well, what's never said is Medicare is really a lousy insurance plan. <laughs> you know, in Medicare, you have to pay three premiums to three plans. You have to pay a Part B premium. So A and B covers hospitals and doctors, but not drugs. So you have to pay another premium for drug coverage. And even with that, you have these big gaps. So people go out and buy uh, Medigap insurance. That's the third premium, the third plan. And even with all of that, uh, you can still get killed uh, on, on the drug uh, side of it. So Medicare is much worse than what people get uh, from, from their employer. Uh, Medicare Advantage, you can actually think of that as privatization of Medicare. Um, you pay one premium to one plan and uh, you're limited in your exposure and it, and it works quite well. But um, Medicare doesn't allow you right now to have the direct primary care uh, arrangement we talked about uh, earlier. In other words, you can't have a concierge doctor under Medicare and um, it doesn't allow a lot of other things. Um, so, so Medicare, basically med the way Medicare looks is the way Blue Cross looked uh, years and years ago, way back in 1965. It copied the Blue Cross plan of the day. And that's why it didn't cover drugs, because way back in 1965, drugs weren't very expensive and Blue Cross didn't cover them. Well, by the time Medicare got around to covering drugs, every private plan, every employer plan, plan covered them. Uh, same with telemedicine. Med Medicare is the last uh, to to adopt to changing technology and changing opportunities. So if you want you want a healthcare system that responds to needs innovatively, takes advantage of new technology, Medicare is not the place to be. So two two points here, and then uh, we'll let Graham uh, wind this thing up. Uh, John, you just talked about something. Wouldn't it make sense under your model to everything you've been used to for twenty five or thirty years, perhaps an employer provided healthcare or your own coverage? to be able to move into Medicare and have the same or similar advantages and opportunities. Yes, and that's exactly the plan that Tom Sabian at, 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 at Texas A&M, who was a trustee of Medicare and I worked out where people would put money into a system and they could have health insurance that looked very much like they had uh, before they retired. Uh, so you're exactly right. So second point here, and then Graham, we're gonna come to you. Uh, Dr. Goodman, there's a regular uh, debate in Washington, and, and it, it comes and goes, but it is, why wouldn't we let Medicare negotiate drug prices? Of course, I know that answer, but let's hear your answer. Why don't we want that as the model? We know the Congressional Budget Office has looked at this, and it said that um, as long as you have to accept every drug, there's no savings at all uh, in negotiation. 
And um, if you want to be like the VA, which pays lower prices than everybody else, um, the way to do that is you have to, there have to be drugs you don't pay for. And those are drugs that might save your life. So, um, so there's the trade-off. But even beyond that, if we did something like what the VA does and we suppress drug prices, it's really interesting work coming out of the University of Chicago that says we're going to pay a price. So you lower the return for innovation and new drugs. You're going to get fewer new drugs. Fewer new drugs means fewer lives saved. So there's a health cost down the road to trying to punish the, the drug companies today. Well, you act like you want to make friends with technology and success for our future. Yes. That's what sure. I think. <laughs> that's the Goodman model. Be prepared. You're not an Eagle Scout. You're just a great, a great scout. You, you <laughs> be prepared for tomorrow, but make sure that it is to the advantage of the consumer who wants to make their life better, but be participatory. Graham? Yeah, we are sure glad to have somebody like John Goodman who can figure the ins and outs of these things and he knows the details. And we're equally glad to have someone like Congressman Pete Sessions in Congress who knows how to get people to think seriously about this and adopt as much of, if you can get them to adopt as much of John's plan as possible, Congressman Sessions, we'll be pretty happy with you. Well, I want you to be happy with me. And in fact, as chairman of the Rules Committee, these were some of the, the biggest debates that took place inside. Bone. I can imagine. Mm. And, and we will continue that fight. Thank you, Graham. So if, if you want to have more details, I invite people to take a look at our website. This is independent.org. You can find John's book here, New Way to Care, Social Protections to Put Families First. It's available here, also available on Amazon. Uh, it's worth a read. Anybody who wants to understand, how could this really work? How could we transition? How could we put this thing on a sound footing? Uh, John Goodman shows the way forward. And uh, we're grateful that you published that book with us here at the Independent Institute. And I remind our friends um, around the country who are with us today that uh, the Independent Institute exists to provide the educated public with resources to kind of sort these things out to find a way forward uh, for American life that respects individual liberty and human dignity, come to our website, independent.org, uh, anytime for some resources to help you. And then, of course, uh, finally, in closing, thank you, John, for your good work. Thank you. It's, real, it's really a privilege to have you with us as a senior fellow. And finally, Congressman, and Congressman Pete Sessions, you're doing a great job. Well, really you put are. John Goodman in the same room. I'll be there to support him. His ideas. Uh, help make our world better and they shape ideas that bring back individual uh, power to, to the United States of America. Freedom works. Keep up the good work, Congressman. And thanks everybody for tuning into this episode of Independent Conversations. We'll look forward to seeing you all next time. Take care. <laughs>